0: Hey
1: there, everyone. My name is Christian Wynn, the director of Storyfort, and you're listening to Storyfort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe. Every March, the March of 2020, we were rescheduled because of this global pandemic to September of 2020, but now we have been rescheduled for September of 2021. But we're still here to tell you about all things Treeport on this podcast. Today we're going out to the Idaho Botanical Garden and the old Idaho Penitentiary, which sit on the edge of downtown Boise. It's a really cool, kind of creepy, quite beautiful place, but it also has a lot of really interesting history and scary histories really kind of creepy stuff happened out there at the old idaho pen we're gonna get some stories from two historians about the old idaho pen true crime stuff and we're also gonna have a great fiction writer in the mix um in julia mccoy but the first guy who's coming up is anthony perry who is an historian a musician he's played tree fort before he's an interpretive specialist out of the idaho state historical society anthony earned his degree with a dual major in history and music theory and composition from the college of idaho but he's a longer bio i'm just gonna bypass and get to his story and we're dropping into the story just a little bit late the early part of the audio got a little. A little messed up, but we are just right at the beginning when this guy named Earl, an inmate, an eventual inmate, has just murdered a woman named Pearl at a transient hotel back in the early part of the 20th century. And so we're just going to drop you in and want to say thanks for listening. Anthony Perry is going to bring this story, and then we're going to have Juliet telling some fiction up next, and then Amber Byerly, another historian, is going to come in third and round out this scary story event that we had. So, anyway, we hope you're doing well. It's cold and very fall-like here in Boise, and we're anticipating next September with a really happy and hopeful heart, to say the least. So, anyway, here is Anthony Perry starting us off with a scary story it's about a guy named Earl.
2: Earl actually just walked next door to this TV shop where he hailed a taxi for $3 to the edge of town. And from there, he hitchhiked. He ended up going to Salt Lake City. And reports started going through the area looking for him. And a lot of people phoned the police and they said, this this 21-year-old, lanky, mentally disturbed, agitated individual, I saw him hitchhiking. And it looked like he was heading south. And uh, sure enough, he actually gets busted. Uh, Fifteen hours after Pearl's body was discovered in Grantsville, Utah, he was hitchhiking, and police spotted him and and arrested him. So he was brought back. He actually asked for mental exams and tried to fight the case, pleading not guilty, and the jury ended up finding him guilty of murder in the first degree, and he entered the penitentiary on February 15, 1957, with a life sentence under the number 9599. Now we're going to go transition to another man who found himself as a transient laborer uh, stopping into the town of Burley just about three and a half years later. This man's name was Ernesto Blanco. He's inmate number 10771 and he was born on July 24th, 1927 in Mercedes, Texas. He had about a fourth grade education and he had joined the army and served for six years in World War II and then Korea. On September 6, 1960, Ernesto was in the midst of a bender. He was a transient laborer, He's going from town to town, doing odd jobs, working in the fields, and he had been drinking for about a week straight after being in Idaho for less than two weeks. When he decided to stop at East Park in Burley, Idaho. He talked with the groundskeeper who loaned Ernesto some cash for food and gas, and he actually took Ernesto's wallet for collateral. Ernesto needed to fill his tank to drive to Pocatello where he was supposed to get paid for this previous job he had done. And as he sat in the parking lot, this five-year-old girl actually came up to him and heard that he was playing music in the car and knocked on the door, and said, excuse me, sir. Can I, can I get in the car with you? Can I listen to the music with you? He's intoxicated. He's not thinking straight. So he says, yeah, sure. Come on in. This little five-year-old girl gets into his car. And then she said, quote, she wanted to go for a ride. So, intoxicated, not thinking straight, Ernesto decided that he would take this five-year-old girl on a trip to Pocatello with him, from Burley to Pocatello, which is about, it's over an hour drive that way. Clearly not thinking straight. So he headed northeast to Pocatello. Um, Authorities were alerted about the disappearance of the girl, and a four-state broadcast was sent out to track down his 1952 Chevrolet Sport Coupe with a missing front grille. The groundskeeper gave the authorities Ernesto's wallet, which had his photo ID in it. And 150 private citizens and police officers, actually, they searched all the back roads, canal culverts, everywhere looking for Ernesto or potentially the body of this young five-year-old girl. The static on the radio between towns was too much, so Ernesto actually turned off the radio, meaning he didn't hear this all points bulletin of these police looking for him. He made it an hour into the drive and stopped at Massacre Rocks along the Snake River and decided to stop for some soda pop, then changed his mind and decided, you know what, we better turn around and head back to Burley. This is about 8, 10 p.m. He made it about 29 miles west of Massacre Rocks when he ran out of gas. He saw a farmhouse and decided he would walk over and ask the farmer for some gas and get back on the road, but the farmer refused. So Ernesto returned to the vehicle where he decided to hide the girl in a haystack while he'd siphoned off gas from farm trucks stealing gas so he does that he steals this gas and about 1 10 a.m. he returns to his car he returns to the haystack where the little girl is sleeping gets her in and drives back to Burley early the next morning after about 13 hours he had been with this little five-year-old girl he drops her off a block from her grandmother's house and continues on his way the girl ran to her grandma's house who was relieved that she was actually still alive And her mother and father actually rushed over, loaded her into the car to take her to the hospital when she said, quote, Daddy, there's the car. They had pulled up behind Ernesto, who's still driving through Burley. The father followed Ernesto's car for 16 miles before running him off the road. And the child's father actually hopped out of the car with an unloaded revolver in hand. And as he approached Ernesto's vehicle, he waved down a passing truck and said, get the authorities out here right now. He came to Ernesto's uh, car. He said, you're staying right here. Well, after a moment, he decided, you know what? It's going to take too long for them to come. I'm going to bring him back myself. So he got his wife into the driver's seat. He grabbed Ernesto, threw him in the back seat with a gun in his face, and they drove back to Burley where they met the police. They arrested him. Ernesto repeatedly denied touching the little girl and said, you know, quote, I was just joyriding. The little girl was taken to the hospital for a checkup where it was actually revealed she had not been physically or sexually abused at all, Uh, regardless He was charged with second-degree kidnapping and lewd and lascivious conduct with a minor. He awaited his trial and he was taken to State Hospital South in Blackfoot for a pre-trial psychiatric examination, but he escaped on November 25th. He stole a 1955 Ford and headed east to Colorado, and from there he dumped off this vehicle and headed south where he crossed the border into Mexico, successfully eluding police. Until February 18th, 1961. Ernesto crosses the border again back to the United States, returns to his hometown of Mercedes along the southern tip of Texas where local authorities actually recognized him as being wanted for this stolen 1955 Ford. They arrest him, and then they discover this other story of him abducting this little girl. He actually refuses extradition. The governor of Idaho has to sign papers to have him brought from Texas back up to Idaho to be charged. And from there, he pleads guilty to both counts of kidnapping in the second degree and lewd and lascivious conduct. And he's sentenced to not more than 20 years for lewd and lascivious conduct and not more than five years for kidnapping in the second degree, both of which to run concurrently. While in prison, he actually worked in the inmate tailor shop. Uh, He reported to church every week and regularly donated blood with the Red Cross. And authorities said he was a good worker. He was pretty well-liked. It wasn't really a behavioral problem or anything like that, and it seemed he got along well and found his routine. But as far as other prisoners were concerned, he was at the bottom of, a, of the pack. Uh, he was in for lewd and lascivious conduct with a minor, which he's gonna have a target on his back. Finally, on September 26th, 1963, Ernesto was standing at the base of the stairs near the basketball court over here at the old pen with fellow prisoners near the basketball court to return to his cell for the evening 4 23 p.m. when another prisoner also housed in his cell house named Earl bone approached the group his hands were over his lips like this another hand was behind his back Ernesto's back was turned and Earl came up behind him and revealed a 7 inch homemade shank a homemade knife and he plunged that into Ernesto's back Earl ran and dumped the knife, and authorities came over, took Ernesto to the hospital, and he was pronounced dead at 5.15 p.m. Earl was actually spotted by a guard trying to hide the knife. And they grabbed him, they rushed him into his cell along with the other prisoners that witnessed the stabbing. They were all questioned. When they asked Earl why he killed Ernesto, he said, quote, I didn't like the man. Only reason. Ernesto's family couldn't afford to have the body buried elsewhere, so when you visit the prison cemetery back here, On the far right side, you'll see a little military marker on the ground that says Ernesto Blanco, Texas, PFC, U.S. Army, Private First Class, World War II in Korea, June 24, 1927 to September 26, 1963. Now, Earl Bone's story doesn't end there. He had some severe mental disabilities. He was actually sentenced with a second life sentence for murder in the second degree for Ernesto's death. He sat in Siberia, the solitary punishment cells, for 18 months, and he regularly hurt himself. He said, quote, I would bang the back of my head against the steel door in my cell, and I entered my head because my ears pop. I've tried to kill myself 11 times since I've been here. He was constantly in trouble, being locked up in punishment cells like Siberia and the cooler, and other prisoners were very aware of his self-destructive tendencies. I actually have an oral history taken at the current institution on february 22nd 1979 with inmates dennis clark harley carringer and dobson so we'll let you hear that real quick
0: one guy cut his wrist over there all morning and he actually had blood every time his heart beat blood just burned out his eye he's got laying outside the bars i'm i'm laying myself there i can see the whole thing and we yelled, I guess, for about thirty minutes until everybody just give out. This guy's about to bleed death. Pretty quick, here come one of them and look in and find he, he like to die did he, How did he cut his arm? Oh, I don't remember now. What he used, uh, I think, a little piece of metal they sharpened up like razor blade. So wasn't it? It was self-inflicted. That was that happened in uh, the hole. Just where that happened. Uh, you sell selling number, no what's it two back? It's four and six. Okay, one, two, three, four. Uh, four. Three four. Sell and four. He's selling three there, I'm selling back. sell four. Back, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm trying to understand wh- whether or not he had tried, was he trying to commit suicide or was this an accident or what? He wants sympathy. Oh, so he just wanted some attention. More That's than- about what the mountain I see. It was self-inflicted.
2: He wanted sympathy. He cut himself several more times, and on June 15th, 1968, he actually cut himself for the last time. He was taken to the prison hospital for treatment. And while there, as inmate nurses and the prison physician had their backs turned, Earl actually picked up a bottle of Pine saw floor cleaner and started gulping it down. He drank about one quart before the hospital staff could take the bottle away from him. Guards grabbed straps and strapped Earl to the uh, gurney to prevent him from doing any more self-harm, and they pumped his stomach and attempted to clear his system. He started to get quite ill and go into convulsions, and he actually flipped the gurney, landing on his leg and breaking it as vomit spilled from his mouth. The inmate attendants told the guard to unstrap Earl, but the guard was new, and uh, he didn't think he had the authority to do that. As he looked for the captain, Earl slowly suffocated on his own vomit. And we actually have an oral history from one of those prisoner nurse attendants who witnessed this. This is Dennis Clark. It's an oral history taken on April 1st,
0: 1982. There's <sighs> a guy that ended up dying. Earl used to cut yourself all the time. He cut himself up when I was there. He was a man. He killed some Mexican there named Blanco. And uh, then he finally got here. Years locked up. And uh, he died. He died there in a hospital. He had a shackle to the bed. And and, then when he had bothered, he showed himself. He fell out of bed when he fell out of bed. He broke his leg. And the man weighed over 250 pounds. And and couldn't turn him over. And he strangled him. And I was there. I was working in the hospital. And he strangled him in his own Because we couldn't. There was three of us. The officer wasn't unlocked his leg. You know, he was sitting there. The officer wasn't unchecked his leg from the bed. That's when he fell. He twisted. Broke he hatch was broken. You can see it broken. And the officer, he wasn't unlocked. And he the change for him. his name, do you remember? J-Ball. The officer? Yeah. J-Ball. And uh, because he never had the authority, he had to go to the superior or whatever. You know, and the time he got that done and got back to man,
2: oh shocking story these two men who committed their crimes in burley idaho they both came from you know working just fields field working uh transient work entered the penitentiary both of their lives and at the penitentiary Uh, Unlike Ernesto Blanco, whose family couldn't afford to have him transported, Earl's mother actually paid for his body to be transported back to North Carolina, where he had a full funeral and and resides today. Uh, I feel like I've told you probably one of the most shocking stories at the institution. Of course, if you're interested in hearing more, you can visit our podcast, Behind Gray Walls, and... Definitely not as dark as something that I just told you. But thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Take care.
1: Okay. I should mention, too, after Anthony's awesome storytelling, that the live event did take place out at the spacious grounds of the Idaho Botanical Garden, where we were Most definitely very socially distanced, and we very much sanitized all our equipment and took good care to stay safe and well and healthy, and uh, we hope you're doing the same. But that said, our next artist in the event, the Scary Stories event, is Julia McCoy. And Julia McCoy is a middle school teacher in Meridian, Idaho. In her spare time, she travels, kickboxes and is a member of the Writers Write workshop group. She has three pieces published in the Cabin's Writers in the Attic anthology. Julia has a great, creepy, wonderful story about vultures and blood among other things. So enjoy Julia's story. Here it is.
3: A similar content warning for the story as the last one. Vulture. The clouds move in layers, the upper layers still, the lower in charging heavenly bodies. Virginia watches them through the window, her face angled and pressed into the glass. Occasionally, a vulture floats into view, drawing lazy circles in the currents above. She reaches out for Mason's shoulder and he flinches. Her hand returns to her lap, fingers clenched. They're moving again. The trunk of the Studebaker is laden with their meager possessions, just 10 boxes worth. Last time, 11. This time, she couldn't bear the thought of repacking the dishes, so she left them at the apartment for the new renter to find. Mason is eyes ahead, hands at 10 and two. The radio doesn't work anymore, so they listen to the sounds of the miles passing beneath their tread. Virginia presses her palm into her leg. It's not that I don't wanna go with you. I'll always go with you. I just liked it there. She'd made friends, a ladies' quilting club. None of them had children either. It was the nicest thing she'd had in years. One of her boxes held scraps of fabric, half-finished quilts and unconnected patches. We go where the money is. The money never stayed in one place for long. They'd find it in a new town, tucked in the middle of nowhere, but just for a little while. Six months, a year. Then Mason felt disrespected, underappreciated, bored. He quit. He was fired. The money moved. Somehow, Mason divined its whereabouts, and they were off again. This time, he'd been fired. He'd been making bouillon cubes, shoveling desiccated chicken broth into a grinder before it was pressed into tinfoil. She knew he'd been drinking before work, knew it was out of control, but didn't try to stop him. What was the point? Where are we going then? West. He reaches out a hand and brushes her cheek. She feels it, but she doesn't. I've got a good feeling about West. You'll see I'm right. She had talked to her twin sister, Carol, on the phone the night before. Your problem is, Ginny. Carol always smoked on the phone every phrase was punctuated by a drag that you just don't have the stones to end things you need to face it head-on you're acting just like dad Carol had been married and divorced twice the first was abusive the second loveless she'd live with men on and off her son stopped speaking to her and now she is 40 and lives alone Last Christmas, she'd walked out into the snow with no jacket or shoes and sat down on a park bench to smoke a cigarette and die. It was only a passing neighbor who'd managed to take her to the hospital before she froze. Virginia would never be like that. Worry about your own life, Carol. She hadn't even mentioned the move before hanging up. There's a pop and the car tilts into a skid. Virginia grips the dash. Mason guides them into a stop, the car sideways, half on the road, half off. The tire is blown. Virginia watches from the passenger seat as Mason paces the vehicle, stopping every few feet to inspect things from all angles. There's no fixing it. Virginia hides her words behind a hand, so he can't see her say it out loud. She has to say it out loud, but she can't say it to him. There's no fixing anything. Mason makes two laps before opening the driver's side door. Tires busted. We don't have a spare. I'll have to walk back to the gas station, see if I can call a tow. I'll stay here. Maybe someone will pass by and I can flag them down. She doesn't want to walk the two miles with him to the station. She thinks he knows, but it's a sound plan anyway, so he agrees to it. She doesn't watch him go. And by the time she turns to look he's just a speck on the road behind them carol told her not to marry mason on their wedding day jenny he's no good for you she was buttoning the back of virginia's wedding dress i think you're one of those women who needs to be alone cars pass and virginia lets them she doesn't want them to stop better they imagine it's an empty car and move on She stretches out in the back seat of the Studebaker, head tilted towards the window, and watches the vultures in the distance. The sun bakes her, and she imagines that she might never move again, just let herself dry up into powder. Two percent of the water, Mason had said that first day he'd come home from work. Can you believe that? That's all that's left by the time they package it in those little squares of tinfoil. His eyes were wide and grin broad. He lived for moments like these, new things, hopeful things. He'd unwrapped a cube and pressed it to her lips, kissed her as it hung between them. The salt and spices dissolved in her mouth and coated her tongue, lingering. It still lingered after Mason had gone to sleep and she was awake in their bed, thinking about how long it would take Mason to fade again. They'd lived in by-the-week motels, rented basements, workers' trailers. Each time, she'd adjusted. She'd swallowed her words and made things happen. She found work sweeping hair or checking meters. She adjusted. Then they'd do it again. Virginia hated herself a little more each time she'd come home from work and see him packing boxes. Time to go, Virginia, he'd say, not looking at her. Gotta move on. She'd nod, take the box from him, and start packing things right. Carol continued her diatribe even as she carried Virginia's train through the hallway of the church. You're not one of those women who can stand with a man. You're weak, Jenny. You'll just let him lead you. The organs started up. Virginia shook Carol off her and walked down the aisle. Mason doesn't return. It's after four. The summer sun has begun its descent her mouth is dry her lips tight she rummages around in her purse for a mint but only finds a lone cube of bouillon after a moment's thought she sucks on it anyway the salt reminds her of his skin there was so much expectation on that first day together leaning into him for their first dance it was easy to ignore carol's stares and her own doubts that she could not be the woman he needed She kissed him and tasted his salt. When she can no longer stomach her own thoughts, she gets out of the car. At first, she paces between the shoulder and the dirt, kicking rocks back into the dust with her kitten heel. She'll have to call Carol when they get where they're going, not for the address. Carol doesn't ask for that anymore. Still, she'll want to know they've moved again. Carol likes to be proven right. She gazes out down the highway into the unknown west. At least 40 vultures circle up ahead off to the right of the road. She can almost see where they land and wonders what creature lies dead beneath them. The brush dots the hilly landscape, leaving the view relatively unobscured. It's not so far to walk and she should be able to find her way back. She abandons the car and walks into the brush, towards the vultures, stepping over yellow flowers and the holes of creatures living beneath the surface. When her heels start to sink into the dirt, she takes them off and holds them in her right hand, ignoring the sticky grasses clinging to her stockings. With her free hand, she hikes up her dress. A wind picks up and hides her footprints, and she smiles at the thought that no one can follow her. It doesn't bother her when she glances back and can no longer see the car. It's just right there, hidden in the haze that forms from the rising heat. And besides, she doesn't want to go back yet anyway. She is focused on the vultures up ahead, now so close she can see the red leather heads, the curved beaks. There are not just vultures in the distance, but three wooden buildings, all about the same height, all abandoned. The faintest tracings of words can be seen above each. Bathhouse, saloon, bank. Vultures perch on the rotting wood, their heads stretching and shrinking back. In her curiosity, she almost doesn't notice the man crouched in the dirt under the shade of the old saloon. His skin is the color of unbleached bone, his clothing the same as the dirt beneath him. His hair is long and white and loose. The breeze blows in her direction, and she can smell him like rot and sweet mold. Her hair stands up on end, but still she walks closer. There are vultures at his feet. She sees now that he holds a rag in his hand, spots of white still showing beneath the rust red stains. He cleans the vultures beak with the rag, top and bottom and in between the two, then wipes the viscera from its face and neck. There you go, girl. He pulls away, and the vulture lifts off, rising to join the cloud of vultures above them. How do you know it's a girl? The man stands. He reminds her of her father, not in a friendly way, but in the qualities she hated him for, the way he never loved her, the way she wanted him to. She finds that she said this out loud. The words have escaped her without her will, and she lays a hand to her throat. Of course. You never really had a father, says the man. His voice is grass blowing in a dry wind. As he says it, she remembers it to be true. He left us when he found out we were twins. The words are hers, but she can't stop them. I saw him once on his deathbed, told him who I was. He had never even bothered to find out my name. I suppose then, Virginia, That in my presence here, I am the opposite of your father in his absence, no? How did you know it's a girl? She repeats it just to know that she can still speak if she chooses. Do you want something from me? Her voice catches. She swallows away the lump in her throat and rasps out a question. Have you seen a man? My husband. He walked back to the gas station after our tire popped. Mason wouldn't walk this way. She knows that much. His eyes never stray from the path he is on. The man waits, then opens his mouth wide. His teeth are gray, and the smell of rot washes over her again. The carcass, she thinks, the one all the vultures are eating. Surely the smell is coming from that. He closes his jaw, and she can hear the teeth crunch against one another. He repeats the motion, each time his teeth becoming more broken, That's not the right question. Go on, Jinny. speak. Move your mouth. I'll show you how. She does. She can't stop. Though the man comes no closer, she feels his cold hands grasp at her chin and pull her mouth open and shut, shaping her lips to form the words. Mason wouldn't come this way. He wouldn't even notice the vultures. The man smirks. There's a lot Mason doesn't notice. Don't you think I know that? Carol had told her that once. Virginia had knocked a vase to the floor and stormed out. Carol didn't speak to her for a month after that and only gave up her silence when Virginia had called her crying to tell her they were moving again. Do you want something from me? What does she want? Virginia isn't sure. Does she want to be like Carol? Does she want Mason to stay put? Does she want someone else? Her mouth is open, but only dry huffs of air come out as she struggles to find the words. The man leans down again, think about it. Another vulture lands at his side. It rubs its leathery head against the man's chest and some of the blood wipes on the man's clothing. He speaks to it in a low whisper as he cleans the blood off its beak. When it's clean, he kisses the bird's forehead. Virginia's throat is expanding with the effort to find the right words, the lump growing until she can't fill her lungs. She has to say something, so she repeats her question. How did you know it was a girl? Her throat relaxes and she collapses, panting. The vulture hasn't flown away, but lets the man stroke its head with his index finger. His hand looks as though it's been broken many times and is now curled into a hook. Because I take care of them. I know them. I'd never forget them. Like your children? No, not like that. Vultures are joining them in the dirt now, surrounding them. Shall we have a drink? You look like you need one. You can think more about my question. The man walks into the saloon behind him. The birds don't follow, but land on the step leading up to the doors leaving just enough gap for her to walk through. The smell is coming from here, from the porch of the saloon. She retches, but nothing comes up. The vultures nudge at her legs, leaving streaks of brown and red on her dress. The man sits at the lone table. Otherwise, the room is empty. The floor is rotted through in many places, the roof filled with holes. Despite that, The light does not penetrate the darkness surrounding the table. The man kicks out a chair for her. An open bottle waits. She sits on the damp chair and feels it soak through her dress into her skin. Who are you? He leans back, hands resting on the table. That wasn't the topic of conversation, Virginia. Now was it? She looks down, abashed. No, that's right. We were talking about the vultures. You asked me if they were like my children. A curious comparison for you to make, considering your own circumstance. She remembers that moment. She and Mason in the doctor's office, her wearing a hospital gown, him, his coveralls. The doctor told them that she was incapable of having a child. She'll never forget the way Mason's face faded, the first time of many. And she fighting to keep herself stoic. Happiest day of your life, wasn't it? The man grinned, his teeth still shards in his mouth. You wanted to burst out laughing, even with Mason devastated at your side. Then Mason said you could adopt. And you said no without explanation. The only no you've ever given. You never explained it to him. Just left him with that big fat no for the rest of his life. She squeezes the bottle. We weren't ready. The man leans forward, liar. I give you back your voice, and the first thing you do is lie to me? That won't do. Her throat squeezes again, except this time she can feel the knotted fingers wrapping around it, though his hands stay on the table. I didn't want children. That's right, you weren't ready, aren't ready, would never have been. Your child, adopted or born, you know how you would have felt about him you would have known everything about him, would have gone to every baseball game, would have watched him walk down the aisle, would have held his child in your arms, all the while knowing you couldn't make yourself love him, that the poison your father had in his blood was yours too. If you can imagine the son you never had, then you understand how I feel about my birds. Her father had been curled in the fetal position when she saw him. His eyes were shrunken in and his skin nearly translucent. But even still, she could see herself in him. I'm Virginia, she'd said. Do you know who I am? He'd turned his neck to glance at her, then lay it back down again. I thought the fact that I never looked for you was enough of a clue. I didn't want you then, and I certainly don't want you now. She'd never told Mason, never told Carol, but she tells the old man i'm afraid that's why he never stops moving i stay with mason because i'm afraid i'm the reason he can never find a home and you're right virginia drinks from a bottle only registering as the last drops run out that it's salt water it's time virginia the man holds out a hand and she takes it squeezing his fingers as he cannot squeeze hers he lets her lead them out to the porch where the vultures have all landed and stand, wing to wing, jostling. He walks her off the porch back into the sunlight, now starting to fade with late afternoon. There is no more smell of rot here, just sweet. Do you want something from me? He reaches out and strokes her forehead with his finger. What does she want? Does she want Mason to find a home? Does she want to leave him? Does she want a new life? From me, Virginia. What do you want from me? I don't want to face this. The words are hers. She sobs, and he wraps his arms around her, pulling her in close. I can do that, Virginia. I can give you what you want. She leans her face into his shoulder, feeling the sharpness of his bones through his clothing. She closes her eyes. Her body slumps against his, But he's not there to catch it before it hits the dirt then her eyes open again new eyes she looks up at the man and loves him looks out at the ones around her her flock she smells the sweet and rot intermingled one in the same the man strokes her head then the flock takes off and she follows them into the currents above in the far off distance she sees another man not the man she loves but a man she never loved. He is calling out for someone, it doesn't matter who. The one she does love is calling her to him, how she delights at his voice. One day, he will love her in return. She knows it. He is calling her to a feast prepared just for her. There below, a discarded creature is left to rot in the shadow of the saloon, a forgotten, pitiable thing. Her first meal in this new body, She has never wanted so badly to eat. Thank you.
1: Okay, our third and final storyteller is going to bring you some more true crime about the Idaho State Penitentiary, the old Idaho State Penitentiary that closed down, oh, I think it was in the early 80s, maybe the late 70s, but it's been closed for quite some time. But there's a lot of history, and she's going to bring us a couple of great stories from that history. So her name is Amber Byerly, and she's an Historic Sites Administrator with the Idaho State Historical Society. She earned her Bachelor of Arts in History, Secondary Education, and her Master of Applied Historical Research uh, from Boise State University. She served as the first Boise City historian and as a photo-slash-research assistant on the Idaho Yesterday's publication. And she's a great storyteller. There's more to her. You can look her up on their, on their website at the Idaho State Historical Society. But she's bringing us some awesome stories to close out this event. And with that, I give you Amber Byerly. Enjoy.
4: All right. For, for your uh, bravery and being out on such a cold, windy day, I will tell Amazing stories, but brief ones, all right? (laughs) Um, One of the things we do at the Old Idaho Penitentiary is make sure that we have good and and accurate history, but we also um, acknowledge the past. And so I'd like to start out today by acknowledging that the land that we're on is actually sacred uh, to native people. If you know anything about the Table Rock area, it was a rendezvous point. And of course, Eagle Rock um, over here to my right um, was also part of that. I say that because people, one of the most common questions that I get is, do you think the old Idaho Penitentiary is haunted? And if so, have you experienced anything? I would say that they're having that acknowledgement of the past and knowing that maybe at times this area uh, was one in which we were not welcome, also one in which the suffering of the people that were here, um, they of course all made poor choices and mistakes, uh, but this was their lowest time. I am gonna share a story of the oldest headstone that's in the cemetery. And I say that because there were others that passed away before um, this gentleman, uh, one of which was the first person who was executed at this site, again, who was uh, Native American, his name was Tom Biago. So the first person that was uh, at least buried with a headstone here, that burial actually took place just right over these hedges. I say that because we can confirm that his headstone is in the cemetery that that Anthony mentioned, but we can't confirm whether or not his remains were moved. So maybe right here where we're at uh, is also an area where there's uh, maybe unpleasant things that happen. This gentleman's name was William Trent. And in 1880, he went on a spree of robberies, kind of following the Boise River. Uh, The initial robbery occurred in Middleton, Idaho, if you're aware, just west of us here. Uh, Robbed a store, had actually... uh, there were people that were sort of coming and going. He managed to get the store owner um, with an accomplice. Uh, they got, they managed to get the store owner and the people that were in the store behind the counter. Rob him. Come from uh, Middleton. Come east. Actually, do a couple of more robberies. They were able to get a pretty good description of him since he left. You know, they left victims behind. He's about five ten, blonde hair, blue eyes, and they're they're looking for these gentlemen. Of course, they keep mounting these robberies up. They eventually find him. He's brought to us as William Trent along with his accomplice. And several months later, just a few months he was here, they actually managed to escape. Now this is before these stone walls would have been there. So this is 1880. There's only one building that would be in the interior here. It's the old territorial prison and there would have been a wooden fence. So that's why it was actually quite common for for men to escape. With these gentlemen, there were four total that escaped. They make their way kind of southwest, heading that way, and they um, uh, immediately run into uh, a farm. And so they, they get all of the, the people, that the family, they kind of lock them up and then they think about what to do. So they're all in this home. Well, they didn't know that the wife of the farmer uh, was actually in another room and then she manages to escape. So the Boise Calvary is, is called. Of course, Fort Boise was right over here. Um, they, they start to come out. The men kind of sense that something's happening. They escape further, and um, gunshots go back and forth. In this, there were a couple of the men, the couple of the inmates that were wounded, uh, but William Trent is mortally wounded. As he's dying in his cell, they bring him in. He said, I need to clear the air. My name is actually William Reese. I changed my name, obviously had many aliases, but I changed my name because I come from a good family with a good name and I didn't want to sully that, but I also didn't want to die without having my proper name. So on his headstone, if you go out to the cemetery, you'll actually see uh, along the bottom His name is listed on the headstone as William Trent with the date and everything, 1880, but on the bottom it says Reese because that's how the inmates would have known him and the inmates were actually the ones uh, who would have carved out his headstone. So, So they put both names on that headstone there. A lot of people, again, like I said, ask me what sort of experiences that I've had, be they paranormal, be they odd. For the longest time, I didn't have any stories. I didn't I didn't have problems. Uh, uh, I, I think sometimes that can be because I didn't want those problems, so I didn't invite that into my life. However, as we just this past year were researching uh, the women uh, that were held at the Old Idaho Penitentiary, mostly inside the women's ward, which was outside the main walls here, um, we researched all 216 women that were there. We got really to know these women intimately because, again, there's only 216 of them—a very quantifiable number. As I'm conducting these this research, we reach out to a lot of people, get a lot of these stories. We had one researcher, Sky, who's along with Anthony does the Behind Gray Walls uh, podcast. Sky did an individual biography on each one, and so we know a lot of intimate details about these women. Well, one morning I'm opening up the site for the day. And I go in the first door, which is along the walls of the women, women's ward, make my way into it. Again, I'm the first one there for the day. It's very early in the morning. It was actually quite cold. So there weren't many, I didn't see anybody in the foothills walking. I say that because when I opened the next door, there was a waft of smoke that just blew into my face. And I'm looking around thinking, Okay, nobody else is here. I myself do not smoke. It's not coming from me. Check the garbage can for any like cigarette butts or anything like that. And all I could get inside of my head was this image of a woman, and they were allowed to smoke, just kind of sitting there going, you better get it right, sister. And that's kind of the heaviness that I keep with me. And I think that's probably why I don't experience that much paranormal activity, because we are doing everything we can every day um, at the site to make sure that we get this story accurate and to humanize these men and women as well. We recognize that they were in for very violent crimes. If you heard Anthony's story, you know it gets pretty deep and depressing but we also recognize that each one of them came from a unique background and a unique experience. And so that's why it was very important to us to identify all of the inmates that passed away while incarcerated here. And as much as you might think that that's just an exorbitant number and it was just all death and dying, there were 129 deaths to date that we've confirmed. Yes, that sounds like a lot, but remember that's over a 101 year history. So just over one person a year was actually the average that, that passed away. Now of those 129, remember Anthony said, we have confirmed that 55 are buried in the prison cemetery here and we continue to do research out there uh, to make sure that if there's more that we identify those. We do that mostly through the Idaho State Archives going through historic uh, uh, prison, or the prison uh, warden's reports, excuse me, uh, the newspapers of the time, and of course death certificates which always listed the burial spot of folks. One other thing that, that happens quite frequently is we get family members who are doing research about their families. And sometimes this can be a very uncomfortable conversation because quite often what happened is there's a family story and it sometimes does not involve the truth of what actually occurred. One such instance occurred with a gentleman who came in and said, I understand you've been doing some research about the people who died here. You know, my grandfather's buried out there. And we said oh that's that's very unique. would you you know mind sharing your story with you know asking that permission from him? He said yes, and he 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 tells the story and um he says his, his name is Charles Patterson, and you know my I knew this story, and my eyes got a little big, and I said, Well, are you aware of of the crime that occurred um and he he had said Um, Yeah, I think it had something to do with bootlegging or something like that. Unfortunately, and again, a a small warning to to those out there, um, he he was actually in for assaulting his daughter. And so it was something where in that moment, what I decided to do was give him our book about the the men that are buried. And I said, you know, that's actually not accurate. I want to prepare you that the reason he was in prison is actually very unpleasant and involved in assault there's a lot of surprise um, in his you know facial expressions but I said you you can take this if you'd like to to find that out he did thank us he came back later and said you know I didn't know that and I appreciate your sensitivities all of that Um, but that's just some of the things that we have to deal with with the realities that that occurred here but again We also want to honor the fact that the people that are buried in the prison cemetery were not necessarily those that were just forgotten or discarded. They are disproportionately um, people of color, People from low economic, um, you know, or, or poor economic conditions, um, things that make sense. The family couldn't afford a burial, of course, um, or family was was very far far away, and they couldn't really, um, in those times, afford to take the train or pay for all of the expenses that would get them out there. Um, also, uh, what we what we find is that a lot of families tried really, really hard to to get these men and do everything they could to, to get to get them to their you know proper homes, give them a quote unquote proper burial. I'll I'll leave you all with my uh, it's hard to say favorite story because they're also sad. Uh, but my my favorite story is about Dan Williams who was interred uh, in the prison cemetery Um, it's the it's the background story of course that makes it so fascinating so um, this young kid gets himself in trouble um, obviously um, had had traveled in and out and 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 been working in the railroads and so he's involved in in robbery and he ends up here serves his time serves it very well um, and Uh, So much so that he's released, he's paroled, and he gets this job as a porter in downtown Boise. Great reports. Until one day, he arrives at the penitentiary, and he's very, very ill. And the warden said, you know, Dan, you've done such a good job. We'll take you into the prison hospital here. Of course, you might ask, why did he come to the prison hospital instead of another one? I don't know. I can speculate. He, he was a, a young black man. I don't know if they wouldn't let him enter the hospital or, or whatnot. But at any rate, he did end up at the prison hospital. He does die a few days later. And they notified the next of kin that he had listed, which was an Andrew Scott in uh, Mississippi. So they reach out by telegram. And they said, you know, we've got Dan Williams here, and, you know, it's, would you like his remains? And they get a telegram back saying, don't know a Dan Williams, you know, do what you need to do. And so they bury him in the prison cemetery here, except just a few days after his burial, they get another telegram that says, you know, I am a friend of Andrew Scott's. He's, he thinks perhaps this might be his nephew, whose name was also Andrew Scott. And he says, You know, they say, Can you send us a picture? So the warden actually sends a picture out. And it turns out that this is the, the, the nephew of, of this Andrew Scott in Mississippi. It's kind of a fascinating story. I won't get into too much detail. But um, this man is sort of transcribing this letter because Andrew Scott can't um, read and write. And he said, You know, this is a really good family. And his, the man transcribing it had actually owned Andrew Scott's grandparents as slaves. And so it's just this interesting story inter- interconnected uh, between Mississippi and Idaho. At any rate, the warden actually reveals, you know, uh, Dan Williams, as we know him, actually took out a life insurance policy. So your family is owed this money. They used that money from the insurance policy to disinter... Uh, Dan Williams again as we know him and they buried him at, by his proper name of Andrew Scott remember He shared it with his uncle uh, at the Morris Hill Cemetery So they didn't want him to be buried alone or in a prison cemetery that they didn't think was proper And I just like that story because again It shows the humanity of the warden who very well could have kept that insurance money to say well Hey, we had to bury him here, and we had our own expenses and they send that off um, but also to note That most of these people, if they had the resources, wouldn't have left their relatives uh, in a prison cemetery where perhaps they could have been forgotten over time. I thank you all. Um, I don't know if we did as much of the scary stuff as possible, but I don't think any one of you are going to prison anytime soon. So that's encouraging to me. So thank you all.
1: There you have it. Some scary storytelling out at the Idaho Botanical Garden put on by Storyport and the idaho botanical garden and the old idaho pen so super enjoyable it was a crisp windy bright saturday afternoon in the garden and a lot of fun we're in the halloween spirit 2020 has been in the halloween spirit from the get-go it seems like but we do have one other event on halloween night um at a place called kin in boise if you're in boise or coming to boise Check out what they have um, in store at kinboise.com and get your tickets. It's a meal and a drink and a lot of great storytelling and an amazing show put on by our friends, the band Sunblood Stories. 515 Doors and it's outdoors. And then the, the stories get started at 6 o'clock or right right thereabout. So enjoy. We want to thank Treefort Music Fest. You can find out about all things Treefort at treefortmusicfest.com. We want to thank Up Is The Down Is The for our awesome theme music. We want to thank the fine folks at Eavesdrop Studios. That's Ease-drop.com. You can check out the whole network there. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank, man... I don't know, just all the artists that are involved in this wonderful thing we call Treefort. And we are going to see you at the fest.
0: Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.